I'm Zoe Bisbane, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. Several weeks ago on episode number 71, we spent some time on the topic of laziness and questioned whether it actually exists. We talked about the prevalence of misreading behavioral cues like messy rooms and homework procrastination and academic output failure as willful idleness and the various struggles and needs our kids have that go unaddressed when we use lazy terms like lazy. That first conversation with Dr. Devin Price spoke to psychosocial stressors like burnout and learned helplessness and under-resourcing as mediating factors when it comes to overall functioning. But my guest today, developmental pediatrician Dr. Damon Korb, picks up that conversation from the perspective of executive functioning deficit. See, the skills that facilitate the behaviors required to plan and achieve goals like keeping a bedroom tidy or turning in an assignment on time or even seemingly basic activities of daily living do not bloom the same way in all people. And that's okay, provided that kids get the supports they need and grown-ups understand what those supports look like. I spoke with Dr. Korb about his book, How to Raise an Organized Child, which offers tangible steps we can all take to set our children up for functional success. But also, why executive functioning skills are so critical to not just surviving, but thriving. We talked about what are some common and not so common warning signs that our kids may have some executive functioning challenges, the unexpected benefits of boredom, and five very clear steps we can all take to help our kids and ourselves build a critical organizational foundation that's bound to support lifelong independence. Here's my conversation with Damon Korb. So tell us a bit about the field of developmental and behavioral pediatrics. What does that mean? We're a board-certified medical specialty, and we care for kids longitudinally with complex and severe developmental and behavioral problems. And we recognize kind of the multifaceted influences on the development and the behavior of, of children and address them through systems-based care, meaning many of the kids we see are complicated. They have multiple issues going on. And we realize that I myself can't do it all, but I need to work with the schools and I need to work with the occupational therapists and the speech pathologists and the medical doctors to do all these components in order to provide the kind of wraparound support that our complicated kids need. You know, for our audience, I'm imagining that people listening have kids across a variety of spectrums, right? And so I think it would be helpful for you to give a very brief overview about just brain organization and child development because like the layman's version. What I would say is that the brain develops in a pretty typical sequence. So for example, a child who learns to control their muscles first learns to push up with their hands 
and they can lift their chest. And when they lift their chest enough, eventually they learn to roll over. And when they get a little stronger, the muscle development goes further down their body so that they can sit propped with their hands as a tripod to keep them up. And, and when they get a little more strength lower, they, they start controlling their pelvis and they can sit. And then as their leg strength begins to kick in and their coordination of their legs, they begin to crawl and then walk and then run. There's this natural sequence in which kids develop. Same thing with speech. It starts off in the back of our, our throat. All sounds that babies make are, ah, ah, ah. it's from the very back of our throat. And as we start to develop coordination of our mouth, it moves forward. So we do these with the roof of our mouth. And then we start doing raspberries. And then we do abba, baba, ama, mama, because we're starting to control our lips. And it's the same thing with executive functions. That part of your brain that controls organization happens in a sequential fashion, but it happens in a way that most people don't recognize that there's a sequence to it. And yet that sequence and understanding where your child is at in their development really makes a huge difference in, in supporting their behavior, in supporting their competency at things, in supporting their social interactions. The executive functions oversee all of that. So that's the answer to why are they critical for survival? Like you need them in order to participate <laughs> in the developed world. Right. They help you do more than one thing or use more than one brain part at the same time. I call that simultaneous processing. So if you want to make a plan, you have to think about what's worked and what hasn't worked in the past while also thinking about what you're going to do later. It's incredibly important for that integrative thinking, for your big picture thinking, your insight, your planning, your perspective taking, all those things that are so critical for a young adult launching into the adult world. So, I mean, I wonder just to get really visual for a moment, and then you can kind of give us the language to understand maybe visuals we totally see every day. When we see a kid, I don't know, let's say seven, between seven and 11, just make it you know, give a little range with stuff all over their room, right? This sort of like think about like kind of a classic messy room or messy locker or messy desk. This is like infuriating as a parent. And I'm sure a teacher, I mean, I can speak as a parent. Oh my gosh, like there's this urge to be like, oh, this is a, a disaster, you know, and clean up your room. And I wonder just from your perspective, when you see a messy room, how do you start to interpret it or at least start to wonder about it? And can you help us understand sort of how visuals that are like in our everyday life kind of map to this idea of executive function? Everything has an order to it. And kids have to learn to recognize those ordering or those filing systems. You know, our closet is a filing system. We keep closing it. Our, our dresser is a, a filing system, or our desk is a filing system. And until kids learn to recognize that similar things go in similar places, they just do the first thing that comes to their mind and, and drop things wherever they go. And if I'm talking a 7 to 11-year-old, what I'm doing is I'm trying to simplify that process for them in order to help them organize their space. So, for example, I might take their bed frame and get rid of it and drop their box spring onto the floor so things can no longer disappear under the bed. I might use see-through bins in the closet. I might use labels on drawers because for a child who is not thinking spatially, 
for a child who's not thinking spatially, that extra time that it takes to go, okay, let's see, underwear, 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 when you're sorting laundry is frustrating. And they just say it's easier to drop it here. But if they learn to think spatially and they go, this relates to my underwear drawer, then everything gets more efficient. It's just like learning to read. You know, Mm -hmm. when we start reading, we read sequentially. We sound out each word. But once we can sight word read, thinking becomes more and more efficient. Yeah. I mean, and you're, you're talking about ways in which this is, you know, our kids are depending on us to set them up for success or set them up to learn those executive functioning or have their executive functioning skills develop in environments that are manageable, right? Like I'm thinking about I'm sure you're familiar with Kim John Payne and simplicity parenting. And he's, he's like known as Dr. Trashbag, who would like just tell everybody, throw everything out. This this is unreasonable to ask your kid to, to sort of like find their way and put their stuff away when there's so much crap. And so in some ways, it's helpful to think about like we can support our kids by just not making it impossible for them to manage the things. And I wonder if as we're trying to visualize, what are some common and maybe also some uncommon warning signs that you're seeing actual struggle, right? I mean, I, there's got to be some kind of spectrum here, or continuum of uh, kids that are messy or have too much stuff and, and you know, get some bins and you could probably set them up more successfully versus kids that maybe are really struggling or maybe delayed. How should we think about this? So I want to unpack, you had a couple things in there that made me think of a whole different direction to go. I'm going to start with where your question ended up, Okay. Uh, but I want to come back to being a manager and a coach for your kids. So where you ended up was what are some of the warning signs that we can do for kids or how do we recognize when they're struggling? And I guess what I would say is organization is all around us. It's everywhere. And things that seem like common nature to us as adults like turning in our homework when we finish it, or like finding one's shoes or getting ready for bed can seem like insurmountable obstacles for young kids. Learning how to control and regulate our emotions is something we usually develop after the terrible twos around age four, but there's eight and nine-year-olds who have meltdowns when their parents turn off their video games. Those are kids who have developmental delays in their ability to shift gears, in their ability to use their executive functions. So to that other point, we are in the process of recognizing and identifying ways to figure out how to support our kids or where they need support. We do that actually by backing off. It's 18 years of letting go is what parenting is. And so when kids are young, when they're school age, I really think of our role as the coach. The coach calls the plays. The coach makes the plans. The coach uh, teaches the lessons. But As your child enters middle school, you become more of a general manager. The general manager's job is to point out the direction of the franchise. We need to spend more time on homework. Maybe our franchise needs to move in the direction of more exercise, but we don't tell them how to do it and exactly how they need to exercise or what sports they need to do. We just talk about the direction that our franchise is moving in. And then by the time your child gets into high school, well, you become a consultant. You're here if they need you. So you shouldn't be checking their online uh, report cards regularly unless your child is developmentally a little behind and needs that level of support. But ideally, your high schooler has the independence and they need that independence as a high schooler, as an elementary school student, as a middle schooler, in order to struggle and make mistakes and learn to solve their way out of those problems. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking too that 
starts to become an interesting barometer for like, how is my child doing? Like if you are in what you said, so if working backwards, it was the consultant, the general manager, and then the coach. Yes. Yes. Yep. Going backwards. Yep. So I suppose if you're still in coach mode, but you have a middle schooler, or if you're, I mean, I, I could imagine that that can start to become a like, hmm, interesting, like, this age group suggests that kids my kids' age would benefit more so from a general manager, and yet I'm in this coach role. Am I doing something unnecessary, or is the fact that I'm in this coach role all the time indication that a kid is actually a little delayed? Absolutely. It's a warning sign of one of those two things. It's a warning sign of either your child isn't ready, and so you're finding you have to help your child more than expected, or you're not giving your child a chance to show that they're ready. If your two-year-old is learning to feed themselves, but you're worried about them making a mess, they're never really going to learn to feed themselves because that's what two-year-olds do when they're learning. Right. And if you're so worried about your child making a mistake on their third grade English paper and you're editing everything for them, well, they're never going to really learn how to write. You have mm-hmm. to let them struggle with things. Would you name these as executive functioning skills? Executive functioning skills are kind of your command center for so much of what you do in the brain. So your ability to shift flexibly, your ability to plan, your ability to organize content, your ability to regulate your emotions. So all these things go into these skills and and yeah, rely heavily on executive functions. Yeah. I think you sort of hit what I was saying. Well, it's related. This question, like what mediates this? Like why do some... Why do some kids come out of the womb seemingly like pre-programmed to have order (laughs) and then other kids are 15 and still can't find anything any of the time? Or what is this nature, nurture? Like, how do we understand this? There's a, a portion of the brain that's involved in the executive functions called the working memory. The working memory is like your, your dry erase board for thought, meaning you table an idea here, and then you think about something else, and it's still there. And that's what we need for that simultaneous processing. We need to be able to have, this is our RAM of our brain, our ability to hold on to multiple things at one time. And yeah, some kids are born with greater capacities, but even with great capacities, they still need to be trained. I'm a firm believer that organized kids are raised, they're not born. So while some kids may have a little more capacity, those other kids can learn to be organized. They just have to use systems to support how they think. Yeah. Well, I think uh, hopefully we can do it briskly because I know you have these five steps that you talk about in your book. And I wonder if before you run us through them as a grown-up who sometimes I think struggles with some executive functioning challenges myself, if you're a parent that has some of these, even just like basic disorganizations, right? Like can a disorganized parent raise an organized child if we like use your steps or are we like in need of something extra? The answer is absolutely. But I'll give you just an example. My wife may be one of the most organized people I've ever met, just mentally. She can tell me where the receipt is from the toilet that we bought when we remodeled the house 20 years ago. (laughs) I can't do that. Once it goes in my files, uh, it's kind of gone. So I keep really organized files and I look at my files every year to kind of keep track of what's in there. And with my systems, I function just as organized as she can, but she does it all in her head. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
yeah, people with different level of organizational skills can still be organized. What I, I suggest two things. One is it's important for parents to play to their strengths. Now, I'm going to talk about five steps and five different ways that we really kind of use our organized brain. And not everybody's good at all those. So we play to our strengths to really strengthen uh, our organization. And at the same time, for those of us who really have some difficulty with organization, we model for our kids that it's important by showing the systems that we're using to try to be organized. Yeah, to model even using yourself. It's one of those things where you probably, it has to be a parallel process. You've got to be doing the same thing. So I'm going to listen both as a parent and a patient (laughs) As as you talk to us about these five steps to raising an organized child. And I'm a parent too. You know, I have, I have five kids. That's an industry. It is. We were very tired and very busy for a lot of years. <laughs> and I coached so many of their teams. And, and, you know, as a developmental behavioral pediatrician, as a parent of five kids, and as a coach for 20 different teams, you can see that there's huge variation in how kids behave and they perform. And, and that parenting is not easy. You know, I talk to the parents on the sidelines at my kids' soccer games, and it, it's not easy for any of us. And I spend a lot of time in my office helping parents with just some simple lessons that we can fall back on when we struggle. And that, that was the impetus behind this book is, you know, we can teach kids to think organized, and there's just five simple steps, five lessons that they can use for their infant, for their toddler for their school-age child, for their high schooler, the same five lessons, they just have to apply them a little differently. So let's talk about that. The first one is to be consistent. So we know how important being consistent is just on the development of your brain. We know kids that are raised in orphanages where they're not getting the comfort that they need, they're only being picked up three times a day for feeding and diaper changing, that they have elevated levels of cortisol in their brain. And that cortisol over time is toxic, especially to this prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's important for executive functions. So just by picking your baby up when they cry and feeding them when they're hungry and changing their diaper, you're actually protecting that part of the brain that's important for executive functioning when they grow up. So that consistency is important. You talk to any teacher, consistency is important if you're trying to teach your kids how to be safe or if you're trying to teach them routines, anything, if you're trying to teach them how to monitor their emotions by being consistent and even in how you respond to and react to their problems is really valuable. So that consistency is important, whether your child's an infant, a toddler, uh, a teenager. Yeah. And I imagine that the consistency offers opportunity to then build mastery in whatever it is that you're doing consistently. You know, I'm thinking about basic skills like light activities of daily living, which can be hard for kids and hard for burnt out adults too. Just basic, like taking your, you know, vitamins or even brushing your teeth twice a day. Like sometimes, especially in the pandemic, like depression is like at an all time high and burnout and languishing and all this. But this idea of consistency, I mean, is that fair to say that that sort of sets you up to at least be practicing the same things over and over again at the same, you know, relatively on the same rhythm? It is foundational. Yeah, it is the foundation for learning. The second step is to introduce order. There's order inherent in everything. And and it's not automatically seen by kids. And so if you pick your kid up, your child up every time they cry, and you pick them up when they're babies and, and then they cry, they eventually learn that if I cry, mom will pick me up. 
So they learn this cause and effect relationship. By the time they're six months old, we've already taught the first sequence to kids. And we can build from there and how we teach kids to think sequentially. So I teach kids step wisdom. In every process, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. You take out the toy, you play with the toy, you put away the toy. You prepare the meal, you eat the meal, you clean up after the meal. You write down the homework, you do the homework, you turn in the homework. And kids have to learn that that last step is critical, that being a closer is critical. Doing the homework isn't done until it's turned in. And so we teach our kids beginning, a middle, and an end, finish, and then we move on to the next thing. They can see that every little task is a package, is a sequence, is a menu that they follow. And we do this also by introducing the words of order. So first, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that. We are going to do this today and this tomorrow. So they understand time, and time is such a confusing concept for little kids to learn. Even kids up until age 14 really don't have a great grasp of of time. One of the ways that we destroy their concept of time is by saying five more minutes, (laughs) and then 20 minutes, we're all getting ready to leave, because now they have no concept of what five minutes means. So we have to be as consistent with however we teach any of these steps. Yeah. I want to ask about the closing. I really like that idea of a beginning, middle, and an end. And I'm thinking just about how that end part does tend, it does seem to be the hardest part. I mean, I'm thinking specifically about the putting the toys away or the actually putting the folder into the backpack, right? Clearing your dishes. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I wonder in your, uh, you know, clinical experience, what's the learning curve there? Like you introduced this idea, there's a beginning, middle, and an end. And then what have you actually seen in terms of the the (laughs) moving towards actually closing? So I would say this, there's two things to really think about. One is good teaching is not judgmental. You don't want your kids to be scared that they're going to make a mistake. So you remind them. And the answer to your question about what's the learning curve, it really depends on how consistently you're reminding them. Mm. So if you're consistent and you're consistent, kids can, I mean, your dogs can learn to do all kinds of tricks, right? Your kids certainly can learn to do tricks and we just do it consistently. So every time we come home, our shoes go over here. If we do it, sometimes they're never going to learn it. We have to be consistent. Right. It's like you're training. It's like with, I hate to to run with your analogy. You have to train, like, it's like they say two sides of the leash. You have to train the master dog. And so much of what you're saying, it, I'm as a parent, I'm thinking, ah, I see, like, I've got to be consistent. I've got to make sure that if I want that coat hung up in that spot, every time they come home, I actually need to remind them each and every time and make, make that expectation clear. And yes and no. Oh. Uh, you know, if what you're doing is reminding them to put their jacket there, you're almost doing all of it for them. So at first you're reminding them to put their jacket there. And then after a while, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, wait, what should you be doing right now? Mm-hmm. And you want them to be able to find that answer. And, or maybe you say, hey, when we go in the house, think about the first thing you need to do. So you're encouraging them to start thinking, thinking ahead of what are the natural steps that I do when I walk into the bathroom, when I get undressed, when I finish dinner. This is a segue to giving everything a place, isn't it? No, number three is give everything a place. So we're building this visual spatial processing system that is so much more efficient than seeing things sequentially. If I'm 
meeting you and I'm trying to remember you, I'm not going to say you're an eyeball over here and then a few centimeters over is another eyeball and somewhere between that is a nose. I'm not going to take apart your face one second at a time. I'm going to look at the whole gestalt of it and just Mm -hmm. remember it. It becomes a much more efficient way of thinking. And so we do this for little kids first by using high contrast mobiles that we hang over their bed with reds and whites and blacks so they understand the definition and the boundaries to where things begin and where they end. And as they get a little older, when my kids, when my first child was a toddler, we lived in maybe a 600 square foot uh, house in Nashville, but we had stations for our, our child. So this is where the child ate. And this is where the child did little crafts. And this is the the jumper that the child bounced in the doorway. And this is where the balls were in the bin. And this is where the stuffed animals were in the playpen. And so my by keeping those things in set places, my two and three-year-olds were able to learn, okay, balls go here. Or if I want a ball, I have to go here to get them. We start setting up zones and stations in our house so that we start recognizing that there's spatial order to everything we do. We're setting up systems to help them visually, spatially be more successful. Yeah. I mean, and it's back to that simplicity parenting. It's aspirational to me because I, I, and it's sort of minimalism, I suppose is aspirational to me, but this idea that this is hard for adults. I guess this is the moment in the program where I want to say, hey, anyone listening that's like, that sounds great. Can you come to my house and like, you know, clear it out and make the bins? And because I, I know just from being a busy person with a lot of kids running around here, I mean, the entropy is inevitable and it's hard to even put the system into place. So I guess let's maybe have a lot of compassion for ourselves and recognize that this is harder than it sounds and maybe also easier than you fear it might be. Than it, than it needs to be, right? Maybe, yeah. I wanted to maybe just say that. I, I, th- I mean, I think that's a good point. Uh, you know, I've had people say, well, you just have kids who are just really organized. And, and But it's, it's a lot of work to get from where they started to these really organized teens and young adults that I'm, I'm now parenting. And it, it really takes stepping back and seeing the big picture, really thinking about what's the most important lesson here? Am I getting caught up in the moment? I was on the Today Show, and I think Hoda asked me something about her two-year-old child who you know, was making a mess, and they had to go, and what do I do? What I said was something like, listen, you're going to teach kids how to solve the problem. You're going to scaffold it and do some of the, la- the last steps with them. And But what I wish I had said was that you want to teach your child to be able to clean their room when they're 18. <laughs> and, and this battle that you're dealing with at age two isn't the most important thing. You got to step back and see the big picture. But we do want to model that something gets picked up. And if your two-year-old doesn't get that they have to do it themselves, yeah, you help them and everything waits and then you do it and you move on because you're teaching them over the long run. And that's really what's, what's important when you're parenting. Yeah. Oh, it is. I mean, and not to get lost in the little moments. I know you and I aren't talking about food, but I guess a a point to connect is a lot of people get really freaked out when, you know, their kids are only eating the bread and butter or only eating white foods. And, you know, the idea of building eating competency and raising intuitive eaters, it's like my kid tonight ate broccoli and hot chocolate for dinner. (laughs) And I thought, that's actually terrible. You know, okay, that's, that was his, that's, that's what he selected off of what we we offered him and and to not get lost in the the moments or the messes or the processed foods or whatever it is that people freak out about i see a little common denominator there 
one of the great lessons I learned from my wife in, we had a picky eater and she would serve the meal. She wouldn't make special meals for this child. And we had a little shelf in the refrigerator with healthy snacks. And if she didn't like it, she could go at age five, get herself something to eat. But, you know, there were carrots and apples and things that were cut up and she could, she could pick from that. So how do we practice forward thinking? Because that's your next step. The next two are really uh, higher level organizational thinking. We take a big leap from the first three, but we need those first three as a foundation to do four and five. So step four is to practice forward thinking, to anticipate, to plan, to think ahead, to estimate. Those That's a skill that doesn't come naturally and really doesn't develop until, gosh, age five or six is when they start thinking about it on their own. So for example, there was the marshmallow experiment that Michelle did where they put the, um, the marshmallow on the table and then the examiner left the room and said, listen, if, you, if I come back in 15 minutes, I'll give you two if that marshmallow is still there. And four-year-olds are lousy at that. They're like, marshmallow, eat. I'm going to do it now. But six-year-olds were very reliable in waiting and uh, knew that in the long run, I'm thinking ahead, it's, it's a good idea. So, so we start building those skills when kids are, are toddlers. You know, if, if I could say, I could have this conversation with a three-year-old. I could say, let's go to the beach tomorrow. What should we bring? And they might say, a towel. Great. Why do we need the towel? Because the ocean. And I say, okay, but are we going to go naked in the ocean? They say, no, we need a swimsuit. Okay, so we'll have a towel and a swimsuit. And is there anything else we should bring for fun? A bucket and a shovel will build a house. Great idea. I'd love to do that. So I'm scaffolding for a three-year-old the conversation about thinking ahead. Open-ended, they couldn't really do that. Mm-hmm. But I'm scaffolding that so they can, they can start practicing thinking ahead. And we do those reminders and help them all. I, I do similar exercises with my, my teens when, they're, when we're in the car. We drive somewhere and I say, how long do you think it's going to take for us to get home? And they're like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? You just drove here with me. How long did it take to get here? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I said, well, was it longer than a TV show? No. Okay. How long is a TV show? Well, it's about 22 minutes if you tape it. Mm-hmm. And I say, I said, okay, so is it going to be more or less than 22 minutes to get up? I, I teach them to, to use those different parts of their brain to estimate, to think ahead so that they're just present in what's going on. That's forward thinking. And one of the things that's really interesting is neurologically in your brain, foresight happens in the same location as hindsight. Hmm. So if you want kids to learn from their mistakes, one of the ways you can help them learn to do that is by teaching them to plan and think ahead. So I, I like to have second graders making their own lunches. And, I, and, you know, fourth and fifth graders really are capable of managing their own homework. And so we give them the opportunity to actually plan and think ahead so that they can practice those skills. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I appreciate that, that connection or even just that little neuro lesson about hindsight and foresight living in the same part of the brain because so much when our kids screw up, at least in our eyes, it's not, you know, like, I don't think you're a bad parent if you lose your temper, you know, I mean, we don't want to be doing this, but we do. And in moments where we either intentionally or inadvertently shame our kids for quote mistakes they've made, I mean, obviously shame is no, no mental status to learn in. So, I mean, let's not shame our kids, but what you're saying is there's such learning in, 
what just happened because you can apply it to this, that's what I'm hearing you say, you can apply it to this forward thinking kind of exercise and you can kind of turn a, a quote mistake or a screw up into a real learning opportunity. It, it just requires us to stay regulated enough to not lose our shit on them. I don't know if, if that... It goes both directions, right? You can talk about what just happened and what could we do later, or we can talk about what might we do in the future that has nothing to do with what we just did, but what would be a good idea and how should we prepare and what clothes should you pack when we go on vacation? That's also building that hindsight muscle. So you mm-hmm. can work in either direction to build the same muscle. I like that so much. It's sometimes helpful just to have a, a language and a way to, to conceptualize it. Well, that sounds like problem solving, like proactive problem solving, or so is, I don't know if that's where you were going, but yeah. Step five is, is to promote problem solving. And, and problem solving really is to be able to, gosh, what am I going to do in order to get what I want, but still give my friend what they want? You know, how do, you, how do I uh, meet my partner's needs? How do I give the teacher on this assignment what they're looking for? You know, once you learn to solve problems, you become so much more effective in life and so much more ready to become an adult. And, and how do kids learn problem solving? Well, I think, I think the first step is imagination and pretend play. Mm-hmm. Because when you think creatively, you're thinking divergently. What are all the possibilities what are all the things I could do right now? What are all the ways that I could use this stick? What are all the you know ways that I could annoy or irritate my sister? That kind of just divergent thinking is really valuable. And then applying that to play, being able to create and imagine, now you're understanding things conceptually. So if I was a princess, what would I do in this situation? What if I, if I was a frog, what would I do in this situation? And so we're thinking broadly about things. And that's the playground or the, the lessons, the classroom for learning how to solve problems. The second major way to learn to solve problems is to let your kids be bored. Yes. You know, we are so afraid of our kids being bored that we try to solve it for them. We're waiting at a rest for a restaurant for 15 minutes and we hand them our phone. No, let them think. You know, when when I was a kid, we would drive five hours uh, in the car to Los Angeles. And I would look out the window and I would make up word games and I would, you know, count tumbleweeds or whatever I would do. But now kids expect to just sit there for five hours and do this. And it's it's the exact opposite of divergent thinking. It's very linear. I push this button, then I do this, then I do this, then I do that. And it's building an entirely different muscle in your brain that's not as useful in the adult world. I'm really glad you brought that up. And this is really, especially now in the pandemic and with the amount of kind of parental burnout. And, you know, I feel deep empathy for a parent that just needs to check out, you know? And I think that that type of, especially if it's like a new thing you're introducing to your kids, because some families are just, we don't do screens and we require our children to be bored and look out the window and count tumbleweeds. But a lot of people, especially in the pandemic, sort of have leaned on these crutches that I I think are, I, I get it, we're all human. And they were sanity saving for kids, you know, who had no connection with their peers. They really needed to have their electronic communication. But it did compound an already existing problem that we let our kids use our electronics too much and we never really learned how to parent it because it just snuck up on us so fast. Truly. And in so many ways, it's like, a. I mean, I'm curious about the 
neuroscience of it, but like the, it's like a pacifier. I mean, that's what they're used to pacify kids. And, and I can only imagine that the over-reliance on screens in this way to, let's say, um, get rid of boredom, right, to pacify boredom is probably really making it difficult to ever develop distress tolerance skills or emotion regulation skills or everything you're talking about, right? So you advocate for boredom. I don't just throw them into boredom and say, okay, you guys are going to be sitting in this room for the next three hours. I help give them the skills that they need. So if I have a child, for example, who really has difficulty thinking of options. Our our brain has drop-down menus. Yes, I love this in your book when you talk about the drop-down menu. It's a very visually useful image. And so, you know, ideally, if a child is bored, they would say to themselves, gosh, what did I want to do the other day? And that drop-down menu would come down and they would do those things. And they should have drop-down menus for things that they could do on a rainy day. And they could have drop-down menus for things if I finish my math assignment ahead of the rest of the class that I could do. And they could have drop-down menus for things I could do when I have a friend over. They have these mental drop-down menus. But for some kids, their drop-down menu system doesn't work real well. So I create these external drop-down menus in a sense. We make mm. we call them lists. And, <laughs> and, and basically, here's a list of things that, you know, and I let them come up with the ideas, but I sit down with them when they're in a good moment and not panicked about being bored. I said, let's make a list of all this we could do next time it rains. And let's make a list of all the things we could do, you know, when our friends are over or we could do in the backyard. And then when they're saying they're bored, I say, well, Go look at your list. Go get your list. Yeah. It's not me telling them what to do. It's their ideas um, that they created, but it's scaffolding that that drop-down menu that we're trying to get them to learn how to develop. This is like the most well, not crib notes, but spark notes, the spark notes version of your of your very well-written book that hopefully everybody will read. But what do you have for parents that have concerns? Or like you know, I think there's the type of parent that can be alarmist. And like, there's really nothing wrong, but they're just freaking out. But then there are parents that they do suspect that there's a real challenge here. I mean, I know we haven't talked about like neurodivergence here today in in particular, but I'm sure ADHD can look a whole lot like some of the struggles that we're talking about and other kinds of stuff. So what are some little, what's a little rubric that you have for us so that we can kind of like make sure we're checking in so that we know if and when our kid needs actual professional attention, we don't overlook it or see it if it's not there. So maybe the first place to start is what does professional attention look like? What does professional attention look like for somebody with some executive functioning issues? Because everything we've talked about so far isn't rocket science. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's things that all parents are capable of doing if they're able to be present in the moment and if they're relaxed enough and all these, you know, other factors that have to be going on in their life. They have, you know, a, a partner who can let them take a break. Clearly, it's not easy, but but none of this is really rocket science. So the question then is, if you're trying to do this stuff that is obvious or is very doable and it's not working with your kids, that's probably the time to ask somebody and say, I don't understand why this isn't working. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why my child isn't making friends, but I take them to the playground all the time. I don't understand why my child can't sit in church as long as everybody else's child, but I'm doing the right things and I'm confident that I am. That's when you seek help, when they're, they're, they're not able to make their lunch as a second grader, or they never remember to bring their homework home. 
uh, and you're re- being repetitive and you're being consistent and you're being mm-hmm. supportive, that's when you, when you seek out help. So what, what does professional help look like? Well, when your child is young, it really looks like helping the parents, mm-hmm. you know, for, for elementary school age children, a lot of it is sitting down with parents and teaching them graduate level parenting classes, <laughs> you know, for the kids that aren't straightforward, it's not just the same basic parenting that everybody else is seeming to get by with easily. You need some graduate level parenting classes. When your child gets to be uh, middle school age, uh, sometimes we do work together with the parent and the child so that they learn to communicate more effectively with each other. Because the lessons the parents are often teaching are good, but they're not teaching it in a way that the child can hear it. And and then sometimes when kids are in school, we might have organizational coaches, mm-hmm. people who can help kids with just how do you organize a backpack? How yeah. do you start an essay? How do you structure things like that? So it's it's an organizational coach. And then you know, there are kids who really have trouble with self-control and impulsivity. And sometimes we bring in a doctor who can help with medicine, or sometimes you have children who are so emotionally distraught with their chronic struggles that we bring in a counselor to help with the emotions that are caused from chronic struggling because of their executive functions. What you're saying is is kind of full circle to where we we began and why I wanted you to, to be here and be part of this project, because so many, and it sort of leads to my last question for you as well, like this idea of blooming in full, right? I mean, everybody is going to, blooming in full is going to look different for every human, obviously. And I think the beauty of it is that, you know, if we embrace all shapes and sizes and we embrace all different kinds of neurodiversity, if that's the goal here, right? To be a truly inclusive world, but we want to be blooming in full. If we think about this specifically as that solid organizational skills are critical to achieving independence, and I'll take it one step further and say to blooming in full, what's the one thing you'd like everyone listening here to do to help that child in their life bloom in full, but kind of through your lens? I think the most important thing is to recognize where your child's at to meet there and push them forward, not too hard, but just at their level. And so, you know, if you have a a middle schooler with the organizational skills of a fifth grader, then you're going to start there. You're not going to hold them to that eighth grade expectation because they're not ready for that. But at the same time, if you have an eighth grader and who's at that level and you're holding them back like a fifth grader and not letting them go out with their friends or do different things, well, now you're also causing problems. So figuring out your child's level, relaxing, letting yourself go and pushing your child to the next level. I love that. I, I do. And, and that barometer is, I'm going to, I want to figure out a way to kind of make a visual for, for our social media about it, because that idea of like figuring out where you are and where your child is, that feels really important. And what you're saying, like I work with families where they do have a middle schooler who is struggling. Uh, I would say is got those organizational skills of a of a fifth grader or a fourth grader, and it infuriates the parents. But meeting them where they are, and it, and that's okay to maybe sort of not treat them like they're in fifth grade, but almost like give them the benefit <laughs> that they would give a fifth grader to like kind of start this process meeting them where they're at. Right. Because you can have a 15 year old, and I'm sure you see this all the time because I know you work with teens that, you know, is going to be on the 
10-year track to adulthood when they're 15 instead of the three-year track. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay. They're nice kids. They're honest kids. They just aren't seeing two steps ahead of them yet. And we can get mad at them that they're you know leaving the door unlocked or making these mistakes, or we can just keep coaching them, be patient, and this stuff kicks in. You know, you've brought up neuroatypical kids and kids who are neurotypical. And what I would say is these five steps apply to all of them. Whether your child has autism or ADHD or or Down syndrome or oppositional defiant disorder, it applies to all these kids. The difference is, is you have to be more patient and you have to take your time and you have to be more consistent. And it's a little more effort on the part of the parents, but it's the same consistent introduce order, give everything a place practice forward thinking, promote problem solving for, for all kids. For all kids. And I, I think in last thing I'll say is I think, you know, a lot of people that follow the, the project say things like, gosh, I wish my parents had known about this when I was growing up. Like some of the stuff we name, it activates some of their inner child, you know? And I've worked with adults that were never, let's say, diagnosed as ADHD or were just sort of treated like poorly and put down and, and sort of, and just being able to never mind a diagnosis, but getting language to identify what their struggles were and where their unmet needs were is, is very empowering, but it also kind of comes with some grief. And I, and I want your audience to know that, that it's never too late to start right. this. You know, if you're sleep training a baby who's six months old, you can get through that difficult part in a, a few weeks. If you decide to co-sleep with your child until seven or eight years old, it's going to be a little more difficult to get them to sleep by themselves, but that's okay. You can do it. You're just going to be a little more work, a little more consistency, a little more kind of rebellion at first. You can do it. And so it's the same thing with these organizational skills. If you have a 14 or 15-year-old that you really because of life circumstances, weren't able to be really consistent or or to use schedules or or these kind of routines that we're talking about, you can do it at 14. It's just going to take a little more time and a little more effort. Yeah. Self-compassion is important here. If we're interested in understanding, quote, laziness or reframing laziness in a more strengths-based way, what's your golden nugget there? Yeah. I mean, laziness is a myth. Mm-hmm. right? Nobody, everybody wants to be successful in life. And when right. we're not successful, it's because we just really haven't figured out how to do it yet. Sometimes it's because there's obstacles in life that really hold us back, but mostly it's it's because of these neurodevelopmental abilities. We don't have the language skills to plan out things. We don't have the sequential skills to understand the order that they go in. We don't have the attention to slow down and and, and learn the lesson. And the most vulnerable of these neurodevelopmental abilities is the executive functions. So, so often kids with weak executive functions who have no idea how to start an essay, let alone finish it, are deemed lazy because they didn't do it. I saw a very motivated 16-year-old who's going through some significant emotional things just the other day. And the school said, I'll tell you what, we'll let you turn in your work a couple of days late. And he said, I've got so much going on in my head I'm either going to not be able to start my work today, or I'm not going to be able to start my work in three days mm-hmm. because I've got these, these issues that are going on in the extra time. Thanks, but it's not going to help me. We have to help them with those obstacles that are holding them back that make them look lazy to, to systems and other people. Yeah. I, I think it's a larger question of like systems of oppression that exist that then kind of 
you know, not everybody's on an even playing field, but I think what you're naming about that deficit and that I like the word you're using vulnerable, I like it better than deficit, like the sort of that they're vulnerable, that that's a part. And then I don't know. I mean, a lot of people don't even know this term executive functioning. Like they don't, I don't know. Organization is a little bit more colloquial, I guess. I think it's becoming more and more mainstream. Executive function is real. People are talking about it more and more. So hopefully soon it's a term we'll be able to use. Thank you for listening to the Full Bloom Podcast. For more body positive nurturing content and conversation, you can find me on Instagram at Full Bloom Project. Special thanks to Davis Lloyd, Christina Regal, and all of you who helped support the Full Bloom Project by rating, reviewing, and sharing these episodes. See you next time.